One of the basic prayers of the Yom Kippur service is the Slichot service. The Slichot service revolves around and has at its core the repetition of the 13 attributes of God's mercy that we find in the 34th chapter of Sefer Shemot, of the book of Exodus. There it says that God appeared before Moshe, and in the 6th verse it says, Vayavar Hashem and God passed by him and called out, Hashem Hashem, Kelrachum Vichanun, Erech Apayim Vrav Chesed Vemet, Notzer Chesed Rarofim, Notzer Avon Vafesha Vichata'a, Vinakego Yinake, Poked Avon Avot Arbonim, Vialbnevonim, Alshileshim Vialribeim. The word passed by him and proclaimed, Hashem Hashem, Lord, Lord, merciful and gracious, long suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then the, the verse continues, this we don't say in the service, that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. These attributes of God's mercy are known in the tradition as the Yud Gimel Midot, 13 attributes of God's mercy, although there's a wide-ranging dispute as to precisely how to arrive at the number 13. In any event, the repetition of these attributes form a basic element of the Yom Kippur service. It is interesting to note that on Yom Kippur, and by the way, in the Slichot service, which precede the high holidays and their various customs when communities begin to recite these penitential prayers. But in the introductory paragraph, it speaks of God, you taught us to say these attributes of mercy, these 13 attributes. And then it continues that we say them, as you revealed yourself and as you taught them to the Anav, to the meek one, referring to Moses from early on. As it is written in the Torah, Vayered Hashem be'anan, vayitiyatsevi Mosham, vayikrav v'shem Hashem. The Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord, which is the fifth verse in the 34th chapter, and the lead-in verse to the Yud Yimumidot. But what is interesting is after we recite these 13 attributes of God's mercy, we then cite another verse, which is, Forgive this people according to your great mercy. And as you have borne them from Egypt until now. And in God's response, And God responded, I forgive them as you say. Those two verses are taken not from the book of Exodus, but rather from the book of Numbers, chapter 14, where Moses invokes these 13 attributes of God's mercy with some variations in response to the sin of the spies, where the spies and ultimately the people reject the sacred land and Hashem threatens to destroy the people. There Moshe calls up the 13 attributes of God's mercy, prays for the people, turns to God, forgive this people as you have borne them from Egypt till now, and God's response is, 
I forgive as you say. So it's interesting that the liturgy, the classic liturgy of Yom Kippur, has conflated the two stories. The story of the golden calf, which is the story of Exodus, and the context in which we find the first instance of the 13 attributes of God's mercy. And it conflates it with the second major sin of the desert, the story of the spies, which occupies the 13th and 14th chapters of Sefer Bar Midbar, of the Book of Numbers. And there Moshe again recalls these attributes of God's mercy, and God again forgives. And the liturgy conflates the two. And one of the reasons the liturgy conflates the two is because the prayer service of Yom Kippur wants to present these attributes of God's mercy as a formula that can be called up at any time the community is in distress. And in fact, this idea is already found in the Talmud. The Talmud says in Tractate Rosh Hashanah, Dafyud Zion's page 17a, that God says to Moses, as the Talmud interprets, based on a verse in chapter 34 of Exodus, I, I establish with this people a covenant. The Talmudic interpretation is that the covenant refers not to the Sinai covenant, which has been put back together again after the sin of the golden calf, but rather to the covenant relating to these 13 midot, to these attributes of mercy. The covenant in effect saying that any time Israel is in distress, Israel can call up the 13 attributes of God's mercy. So the 13 attributes, Yudgimu Midot, become formulaic, and as such can be called up by the community in times of distress, and as such form a very basic component of the Yom Kippur service. What I wanted to do at this point is to try to understand the biblical context in which we find these attributes of God's mercy and to try to understand the deeper significance of the Yud-Gimel-Midot within the biblical context and by extension the deeper significance of this formula within the Yom Kippur service. As I mentioned, the context in which we find these attributes of mercy is the story of the golden calf. Moshe is called up to the mountain at the end of the 24th chapter of Exodus, ostensibly for two purposes. One is to bring down the tablets of the covenant, the Luchot, which contain on them the Ten Commandments. That's purpose number one. And the second purpose is that Moshe ascends the mountain at the end of the 24th chapter to receive instruction about building God's house. God will dwell amongst the people. This is called the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And the instructions concerning the tabernacle, in fact, begin in the 25th chapter and run all the way through the middle of chapter 31. God says to Moses in chapter 25, Yasuli Mikdash, they shall build for me a tabernacle, Vishachanti Bitocham, I will dwell in their midst. And the tabernacle is described, the vessels of the tabernacle, the various pieces of the tabernacle, the curtains, other laws relating to the tabernacle. 
so that Moses is to come down with these luchos, with these tablets, which are to be placed inside the ark, which would appear to be the most primary and most basic and most significant vessel of the tabernacle. It's the one piece of the tabernacle that the Torah mentions first in chapter 25. And in addition, the purpose of the ark is given in chapter 25, where God informs Moshe, I will appear to you and meet with you between the two cherubs, between the kruvim, which sit atop the ark. That the purpose of the ark is to be a vessel through which or from which God communicates to Moshe and by extension to the people generally. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, in Sefer Vayikra, a synonym for the Mishkan, the place of indwelling, is the Oed, the tent of meeting. So that the Mishkan, God's house, is also to be a communication center from which God, after Sinai, continues to speak. And Moses goes up the mountain in chapter 24, end of chapter 24, after the people have accepted the covenant, after in chapter 24 the people say, Nasev and Nishma. We accept, we will obey, we will listen, we will do. And Moshe goes up the mountain with the goal of coming down the mountain with the tablets which represent the covenant. But what happens in chapter 31, even as Moshe is atop the mountain, he is informed by God that the people have strayed, the people have sinned, they have created, they have built a golden calf, which they worship. They bow down to the golden calf. Eila Elohecha Yisrael, Asher Herucha Meyeretz Mitzrayim. This is your God, O Israel, who has taken you up out of the land of Egypt. And Hashem, God says to Moshe, I've seen this people. They're an Oref, they're a stiff-necked people. In verse 10 of chapter 32, Leave me alone. And my anger will rage against them and destroy them. I'll make you a great nation. At which point Moshe, who is still atop the mountain, turns to God and pleads. And Moses entreated his Lord, his God. And Moses argues with God. Why do you vent your anger against your people? They're your people after all, not mine not the people I took up out of Egypt, their fate and your fate are bound together. And furthermore, what will Mitzrayim say? What will the Egyptians say about you? It's not in your own interest to do this. They will impute to you in evil intentions, and from the very outset you intended to destroy them. Therefore, shuv mecharon apecha, stay your wrath, pinochem amecha, and repent of the evil against your people. Furthermore, remember the covenant you made with Avram, Yisuk, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise you made to them that their seeds will multiply as the stars of heaven, the promise to give them the sacred land. Moses' prayer is responded to by God in the 14th verse of the 32nd chapter, Hashem, and God repented of the evil which he had thought to do to his people. The next story, beginning with verse 15, is the story of Moses who descends the mountain 
with the tablets of God. How Moses confronts the worshippers of the golden calf. How Moses breaks the tablets, smashes the tablets. And how Moses and the people and God embark on the road of reconciliation to somehow reconstruct the broken tablets. It's interesting that the story of the golden calf, which of course is initially found in the book of Exodus, is retold in the book of Deuteronomy. In Sefer Zavarim, in the ninth and tenth chapters, the story is retold, but it's retold with some interesting variations. I'm not going, at this point, to go into all of the distinctions between the initial story of the golden calf in Shemot and Exodus and the retelling in Sefer Dvarim in the book of Deuteronomy, but I would simply point out at this time several interesting distinctions between the two stories. One of them is that in the initial story, when God informs Moses about what is to happen to the people, God's plan to destroy the people, and to make Moses a great nation, immediately we find in our text, in the 32nd chapter, Moses' plea. And the last verse of the 32nd chapter, Vayinachim Hashem al God repented of the evil. But in Deuteronomy, we have the following. Chapter 9, verse 12, Vayomer Hashem Eli, and God said to me, Moses is talking first person, God said to me, Kumreid Maher Mizeh, quickly, go down the mountain. Shichet Amcha Asher your people have corrupted themselves. They have abandoned me, says God. The next verse, Vayomer Hashem Eli, Leimara, Itieta Amazeh, Hineam Sheorefu, I've seen these people, they're stiff-necked. Herefi Meni Vyashvideim, leave me alone that I may destroy them. Vyemchet Shemamitachat Hashemayim, Vyasel Tchalugayatsum Varav Mimeno. I'll destroy them, I'll make you a great nation. Here in Exodus, Moses prays. But in Deuteronomy, in verse 15, the next verse is, And I turned back and I went down the mountain. And the mountain was consumed with fire. What's missing in Deuteronomy is Moses' plea for the people. In fact, the next verse Two verses say that when I, I went down the mountain and uh, in fact you had abandoned God and verse 17 I grabbed hold of the two tablets I took the tablets in my two hands I broke them before your eyes interesting to note in Deuteronomy and this is not present in the story of the golden calf in Exodus is that in the 20th verse, Moshe informs us that and concerning his brother Aaron, concerning Aaron, God was very angry at Aaron, enough to have destroyed him. I prayed for Aaron at that time. This is a piece of the story that is conspicuously absent in the book of Exodus. There is no sense whatsoever that God's anger is vented against Aaron. Moses, when he descends the mountain in Exodus, criticizes Aaron. But God never directly criticizes Aaron. What do we make of these distinctions? 
I would add a further distinction is that in Deuteronomy, the breaking of the tablets appears in the text to be a calculated act on the part of Moses. For I broke them before your eyes. Whereas in the book of Exodus, when Moses descends the mountain, there the text says to us that when Moses came near, chapter 32, verse 19, when Moses came closer to the camp, he saw the golden calf, he saw the timbrels, and Moses became angered. He threw the tablets from his hands. He smashed them under the mountain. In Exodus, it would appear that the breaking of the tablets was in a fit of anger on the part of Moses, enraged by what he sees. In Deuteronomy, it appears to be a calculated act. I broke them before your eyes. What is the difference between the golden calf story of Exodus and the golden calf story of Deuteronomy? In the book of Deuteronomy, what's at stake is survival of the people. Moses goes down that mountain after God has informed him, I will destroy the people and make you a nation. He walks down the mountain and he breaks the tablets in a calculated way. He hasn't prayed to God for the people. If one had only that story, one would think that in fact the covenant between the people and God has been broken. And the people's very survival is at stake because God has threatened to destroy them. There's not, no bond that connects them. The tablets have been broken. Moses has not yet prayed for them. And that's why in the book of Deuteronomy, Aaron's fate rests in the balance. Because what Aaron is in the Torah is the representative of the Jewish people. He was chosen initially in the book of Exodus because he's one of the people. Moses had said to God, I can't go back to Egypt to save this people. We don't talk the same language. They won't believe in me. They have no faith in me. I'm not one of them. That's in fact what Moses was saying. To which God's response is, take your brother Aaron. He will be your prophet, as it were. He will deliver your message to the people. He's one of them. That's both Aaron's strength and Aaron's weakness. He understands them, yes. He's also one of them. He's the man who builds the golden calf. He's the architect of the golden calf in response to the people. In Deuteronomy, the issue is survival. And of course, the larger context of Deuteronomy is Moses speaking to the people in the last year of the desert experience. And Moses' concern is that the people who have already begun to conquer the land and will in fact conquer the sacred land of of Canaan will think that they've done it by themselves, that somehow they've always been worthy. And Moses' point in the book of Deuteronomy is don't think that your success is a function of your own abilities and your own ethical perfection. Remember how you made it here. Remember the mistakes you made in the past. Remember, says Moshe, that if I were not around to pray for you, you wouldn't exist. I've saved you on many occasions, and I'm not always going to be around. So take heart, because in the future, there won't be a Moshe to to save you, to pull you out of your troubles. That's the story, and that's the context of Deuteronomy. What's interesting in the book of Exodus is that even before Moshe goes down the mountain, We know one thing. The people will not be destroyed. Survival is not an issue in the the Exodus story. Or if it is an issue, it's removed from the table right away. As soon as Moshe is informed about what the people have done, he prays for them. 
And verse 14 of chapter 32, And God repented of the evil of which he had spoken to do to his people. So he's not going to destroy the people. The people will survive. What then is the story of Exodus about? It's not about survival. It's about relationship. What will the relationship be between God and this people? It can never be the same. Because the people have worshipped the golden calf. And the golden calf is not just a sin. The context of the golden calf is the Sinai covenant. So the golden calf is a breaking of the covenant. It's a breaking of the first of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord God who took you out of Egypt to be your God. And what have the people said to the golden calf or about the golden calf? This is the God who took us out of Egypt. The issue in in Exodus is what kind of relationship will exist between God and his people. Let us now turn our attention to the 33rd chapter of the book of Exodus. Moshe has come down the mountain. He has seen the golden calf and the dancing. He has killed, with the help of the Levites who join him, the initial perpetrators, those who created the golden calf. He has destroyed the golden calf. He has melted it down and made the people drink it. And now in chapter 33... God begins to speak to Moshe again. Chapter 33, verse 1. Vayedaber Says the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up, you and the people, which you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants will I give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, the Hittite, Prezite, Chivite, Yevusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. I will not go up in the midst of you, for you are a stiff-necked people, lest I destroy you in the way. In other words, what Hashem is saying to Moshe is, leave the desert, go to the sacred land, you will capture the sacred land with the help of my angel, but I cannot go with you. I can't dwell in your midst, for you are a stiff-necked people, lest I consume you. We can't live together. I can help you from a distance. I can send my angel. And you'll have the land. You'll capture the Canaanite land. And you'll possess the land of milk and honey. But I can't go with you. Which in the context of the Exodus book means very simply, what does it mean that God can't go with them? It means there can't be a Mishkan. The Mishkan cannot be built. Because I can't dwell betocham. I can't dwell in your midst. Kiyam kshe'orev ato. There can be no Mishkan. Before we continue in the text, it is interesting to note that when Moshe came down the mountain in the 32nd chapter, the Torah told us that when Moses descended the mountain, chapter 32, verse 15 and verse 16, it says, Vayifen vayered Moshe men ahar, ushnei luchot ha'idut biyado, luchot kituvim mishnei avrihem, 
מזה ומזה הם כתובים, והרוחות מעשה אלוהים המה. והמכתב מכתב אלוהים הוא, חרות על הרוחות. מוזס טרנד ונט דאון למאונטן, וטאבוס וריטן על בולט סיידס. On one side and the other they were written. And the tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved upon the tablets. Why does the Torah inform us as Moshe is descending the mountain that the tablets are the work of God and the writing is the writing of God? Of course, one answer is simply that nonetheless Moshe did not refrain from destroying the tablets. But perhaps there's a deeper significance to the statement that the tablets are the work of God. Because what are the tablets? What are the luchot? The luchot, which Moshe has gone up the mountain to retrieve, and at the very same time was informed about the way to build God's tabernacle, all the intricate details of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the Mishkan is built by Betzalel, the great artist Betzalel together with his helpers, the wise people, the Chachamim. And all of the tabernacle, all of the Mishkan, is a product of human ingenuity, who carefully can construct the Mishkan based on the guidelines given to them by Hashem, by God. But there's one piece of the Mishkan that cannot be built by a human being. The most critical piece of the Mishkan the tablets which represent the covenant. Ha-mikhtav mikhtav erokim hu charut ha-ruchot v'yaruchot ma'ase erokim heima When Moses breaks those tablets, he renders the Mishkan impossible. No human can build it, except if God agrees to give a second set of tablets. There's something irrevocable about Moses breaking the tablets. And that's the point about chapter 33. What God has said to Moshe is, go up, have a good life, Moshe, together with the people. Take them into the land of milk and honey, but I can't go with you, because we can't live together, because there can't be a Mishkan. We reach now a critical point in the text. What will the people's response be to this message? From one standpoint, it's good. God has agreed to let them possess the sacred lands. On the other hand, God will not go with them. How do the people respond? Chapter 33, verse 4. The people heard this evil thing, this bad thing. They mourned. And no person put on his, his ornaments, his jewelry, his ornaments. For God, either for God had said to Moshe, as some translations have it, or God said to Moshe, Say to the people, you are stiff-necked. If I go amongst in your presence for me, even a moment, I will destroy you. Take off your ornaments from yourself. And let me consider what to do. What, what does this mean? It means that the people respond to the news as an evil tiding. The fact that God cannot go with them, the fact that there cannot be a Mishkan, is in the eyes of the people cause for mourning. And when God sees this, God says, from one standpoint, we must find a solution which will allow God to dwell amongst them. 
On the other hand, God sees no, no answer. So the answer is, keep, keep the jewelry off. I would interpret that the people took the jewelry off themselves. And, Horei de Yechami Alecha, verse 5 is, keep the jewelry off. Keep the jewelry off. Let's consider a possible solution. How will it be possible for God to dwell amongst the people? And the next verse says, And the children of Israel strip themselves of their ornaments by Mount Chorev. They keep the jewelry off. It's important to note over here that the taking off of the jewelry was not something that Moses commanded them to do. It was the people's own response to the fact that God cannot dwell amongst them. And as such, it's a turning point in the story because it's the first instance when the people begin to take responsibility for their own lives. I had mentioned earlier that there are several critical distinctions between the golden calf story of Exodus and the golden calf story as retold in Deuteronomy. One of the distinctions I did not mention earlier is this. That when Moses retells the story in Deuteronomy, in chapter 9, he says, chapter 9, verse 21, I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and I burnt it with fire. I stamped it and ground it very small, even as small as dust. And I cast the dust into the brook that descended out of the mountain. So when Deuteronomy, Moshe takes the golden calf, he breaks it into dust and he throws it into the river. But in Exodus, in chapter 32, it says something different. There it says that Moses melted down the golden calf. In verse 20, He strewed it upon the water. He made Israel drink it. So in Exodus, they drink it. But in Deuteronomy, he throws it into the river which descends from the mountain. The truth is that we understand this distinction very well. Because in Deuteronomy, the point of Moses is, I saved you. When your survival was at stake, I saved you, I prayed for you. If not for me, you would not have survived. The issue is survival. But in the book of Exodus, survival is not the issue for the golden calf. The issue is the nature of the relationship the ultimate reconciliation between God and the people. And what is necessary for the reconciliation to take place is that the people have to take responsibility for what they did. And that's what Moses is teaching them. He doesn't throw away the golden calf. He burns it down and he makes them drink it. He makes them take responsibility for what they've done. Now we come back to chapter 33. What has God said to the people? You can be successful, you can capture the land, I won't go with you. But the response of the people, when they hear this evil thing, is to mourn, to take off the jewelry, to take off the ornaments. After all, it was the very ornaments, the very jewelry, with which the golden calf was made in the first place. Because Aaron had said to them, Parkun is me'a 
Give me the nizamim, give me the rings, the jewelry, which you possess, which your children have, which your wives have, and bring it to me. And from this Aaron made the golden calf. Here it says something different. They take off the jewelry. And in verse 6 it says, Israel, Israel stripped themselves. It's an interesting word. Because at the end of the third chapter, when Hashem is speaking to Moshe and telling Moshe what will happen in the future to Israel, how they will leave the land of Egypt. There it says in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, I will give this people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. When they leave, they will not leave empty-handed. Every woman shall take of her neighbor and of her that sojourns in her house jewels of silver, of gold, and raiment. You will put them upon your sons and your daughters. You will despoil Egypt. And the Hebrew for despoil is you will despoil the, the gold and the silver will be a despoiling of Egypt. And now in chapter 33, What does it mean? It means that the gold and silver which they take from the land of Egypt has a dual meaning. From one perspective, it represents their freedom. The fact that they are now possessors of objects and the fact that it's the Egyptians who give them the objects suggests material freedom physical freedom from Egypt, and a fulfillment of the divine promise to Abraham, they will leave the land of captivity with great wealth. But from another perspective, the very gold and silver serves as a connective to Egypt. After all, it's the very gold, presumably, they took from Egypt, with which they fastened the, the eagle, the golden calf. What the eagle suggests is that even though physically they've left Egypt, but spiritually, they're still in Egypt. They haven't left. Because they don't acknowledge the God who took them out. They say about the golden calf, Yisrael, asher Mitzrayim. So what has to happen in the story is the distancing on the part of the people from the very gold and silver that they took from Egypt. And that's the significance of chapter 33, verse 6. They distance themselves from the very gold and silver that they took from Egypt. And as such, it's the first step in the spiritual freedom from Egypt, which after all is what the story of the golden calf is really about. The first part of Exodus is the physical freedom, the leaving of Egypt. That's part one of the book of Exodus. Part two of Exodus, the spiritual flight from Egypt. Part one of Exodus focuses on the Exodus itself, and is marked in the Jewish calendar by Passover. Part 2, the spiritual freedom from Egypt, focuses on the story of the golden calf, on the rapprochement and reconciliation with God, and is marked in the calendar by Yom HaKippur. So in chapter 33, verse 6, we have reached an impasse. The people have demonstrated their desire to reconnect to God. But God knows of no way to do this. After all, says Hashem to Moshe, they're an Amkshe Oref, they're a stiff-necked people. 
I go amongst them in their presence, in their presence, I will destroy them. Keep the jewelry off. Let me consider what to do. And now in, in verse 7 of chapter 33, Moses ascends to center stage. Here Moshe plays the role of broker in bringing the two sides together. The two sides who want to be together, namely the people on one hand and God on the other. And Moshe has to find a way to bring the two sides together to make the reconciliation. And the first thing Moshe does in chapter 33, verse 7 is, O Moshe yikachet ha'o'el v'natalo michutz ramachaneh harcheik min ha'machaneh v'karalo o'el mo'ed v'yakum kom v'akesh Hashem y'etzel o'el mo'ed Hashem michutz ramachaneh Moses took his own tent and placed it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it O'el Moed, the tent of meeting. And all that would seek God would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. The Mishkan itself in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, and from that point on, is called the O'el Moed, the tent of meeting. O'el Moed is a synonym in the Bible for the tabernacle, for the Mishkan. Hashem has told Moshe, I can't be amongst the people. We can't be together lest I destroy them. On the other hand, God has made it clear that God's desire is to be with the people. And the people long for God. What does Moshe do? Moshe sets up a tent of meeting outside the camp. The Oel Moed, his own tent, Moses' own tent. After Moses is still in, in God's good graces. So Moses serves as a go-between between the people and Hashem. On one hand, it's outside the camp. On the other hand, it's accessible to the people, if the people desire it. One could see it almost as a test of the people. They long for God, but are they willing to make that journey? Are they willing to seek God out? And the text tells us, For Yochom Hashem, that before we can have God back inside the camp, in the camp, in the initial stages, God must be accessible to those who seek. From another perspective, what is Moses trying to do? He's trying to bring the two sides together. And that's the first step. Then the text informs us, in verse 11, God will speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And he, Moses, would go back to the camp. His servant, Yoshua, the young man, would not depart from the tent. Would not depart from the tent. Moses is the go-between. Moses moves back and forth. A dialectic movement between his own tent in which God is present. And the people, on the other hand, after all, that's Moses' role. Moses' role is to be with God and to receive the teaching from God. On the other hand, God wants Moses to be with the people. And Moses moves back and forth between the Ohel, which is and the people who are Ramachana. Of course, this is only the first step. The next step, Moses turns to Hashem. Chapter 33, verse 12. 
And Moses' basic argument in these very difficult verses is this. Moses says to Hashem, you have instructed me to lead this people. But you have not told me precisely who will go with me. You have said that I find favor in your eyes. If that's true, says Moshe, in chapter 33, verse 13, Teach me your ways. If in fact I find favor in your eyes, teach me your ways, says Moshe, that I may know you, and that I may continue to find favor in your eyes. And consider, says Moses, this is your people. In other words, if I'm to lead them, I have to understand how to lead them. You must go with me, says Moshe. If not with the people, you must go with me. To which Hashem agrees. Says Hashem to Moshe, I will go with you. Then Moshe adds, If you're not going to go with us, there's no point to bring us up. It's very strange because in verse 14, God has already agreed to go. But Moses' argument is a different one, and that is, you agreed to go with me, and I am part of the people. If you go with me, you go with us. Hashem says to Moshe in verse 17, God agrees. I agree to go with you, and by extension to go with them. At which point Moses turns back to God and says, Vayomar, show me your glory. Reveal your presence to me. Reveal your presence to me, says Moshe, not simply to learn about God, that's part of it, but reveal your presence to me, as the Rashbam argues, to demonstrate that in fact you will be with us as a kind of foreshadowing of what is to come. After all, what Moses wants, ultimately, is not God to dwell with Moses, but God to dwell amongst the people, which means the Mishkan to be built. And God has agreed. And God says to Moses, I will make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. However, God adds, you cannot see my face. No human can see my face and live. But I will pass by, I will pass over. And Moses is placed in the cleft of the rock, and God passes over. This is the context for Moses receiving the 13 attributes of God's mercy. The beginning of chapter 34. By Yomer Hashem el Moshe. Hew for yourself two tablets of stone. And I will write on the tablets the words which were written in the first tablets, which you broke. Moses has never directly asked for God to give Moses and the people a new set of luchot, a new set of tablets. But the context of the story makes, the, makes it apparent as to why in chapter 34, verse 1, God says to Moses, Hew for yourself two new tablets. The reason that Moses 
could not receive a new set of tablets is because there's no purpose for the tablets unless the Mishkan is to be built. But the Mishkan could not be built because the Mishkan represents the full reconciliation between God and the people, God dwelling amongst the people, which is precisely in chapter 33 what God says to Moses cannot happen. Because if I dwell amongst them, says Hashem to Moshe, I will destroy them. Yet the people long for God. And Moses has initiated a process, which I have briefly described, whereby we can bring God initially outside the camp, and by degrees, ultimately, inside the camp. So that in chapter 34, verse 1, now that God has basically agreed not only to go with Moses, but to go with Moses' people, now it becomes possible for Hashem to say to Moshe, Hew for yourself a new set of tablets. I will give the people a second set of tablets. Of course, we have not resolved the other problem, but what about the fact that if God dwells amongst the people, God may destroy the people. The people, after all, are a stiff-necked people. How has Moses resolved that problem? It would appear from the biblical text that Moses resolves the problem by having God dwell amongst the people in a different aspect. Moses wants to understand God. Moses wants God to reveal God's essence to Moshe. And God has earlier said to Moshe, Moses, I will be gracious to those to whom I will be gracious and have compassion upon those that I will show compassion. God, in speaking to Moses in chapter 33, speaks of God in two ways, as a chanun and as a rachum, as one who is gracious and one who is compassionate. And those two terms that appear at the end of chapter 33 in God's self-description also appear in chapter 34 as two of the primary attributes of God. When God passes by Moses in chapter 34, verse 6, And God passed over by Moses and called out, Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum V'chanun, the compassionate and the gracious God, the Rachum V'chanun. Erech Chesed Vermet. These are the attributes of God that Moses is being taught. And it's interesting that the moment that God passed by Moses, who waits in the cleft of the rock, that the Torah says to us in chapter 34, verse 8, Moses hurried, and he bowed down, and he said in verse 9, God, if I have found favor in your eyes, walk amongst us, walk again amongst the people. They are a stiff-necked people. And you will forgive our sins, our transgressions. Take us as your inheritance. It's remarkable that Moses' argument with God in chapter 34, verse 9, as to the reason that God should go with the people, is precisely God's argument in chapter 33 as to why God cannot go amongst the people. It's exactly the same argument. God has said to Moses in chapter 33, there are stiff-necked people. I can't go amongst them lest I destroy them on the way. And in chapter 34, verse 9, Moshe turns to Hashem, walk amongst us. You must walk amongst us. Why? There are stiff-necked people. 
So what is the difference between chapter 33 and chapter 34? And the difference is which God goes with them. In which aspect is God going? That's precisely the point of the story. God as the God of truth alone cannot go with the people. Such a God cannot live amongst the people. Because as God rightly proclaims, I'm Kshayorifu, the fallible, the human, the stiff-necked, the sinners. Such a God, in that aspect, cannot go amongst the people. But the God that Moses wants to go with the people is the Hashem Hashem Kelrachum V'chanun, the gracious God, the forgiving God, the compassionate God. And Moses' argument in chapter 34 is, not only is it possible for that God to dwell amongst the people, but it's necessary. Because God in that aspect can be a forgiving God and can forgive the sins and can take them for God's inheritance. And the divine response is Vayomer and God responded in chapter 34 verse 10. God says to Moses, I, I establish a covenant with you. Before your people will I do great miracles, great wonders. I make a covenant such as not been done in all the earth nor in any nation and all the people among which you are will see the work of the Lord. It is a wondrous thing that I will do with you. What is the covenant of which God speaks in chapter 34 verse 10? Rabbinically, and the liturgy proclaims it this way, the covenant relates to the 13 attributes of God's mercy. But the simple reading of the biblical text is not so. The covenant of which God speaks in chapter 34, verse 10, is the covenant of Sinai. The covenant which was temporarily suspended when Moses came down the mountain and he saw the golden calf and he saw the dancing. He saw the excitement about the golden calf. And Moses took those tablets and he broke the tablets. Intuitively understanding that if the tablets represent the relationship between God and the people, they serve no function. If in the deeper sense, there is no relationship. If the people have proclaimed their loyalty to a golden calf and not understood what God was trying to accomplish in taking them out of Egypt to become God's people, then the tablets which represent, which are emblematic of a covenant, which at that point didn't really exist, serve no function. So Moses takes the tablets and he breaks them. And the process of chapter 32 and 33 and 34 is the process of reestablishing fully the relationship between God and the people after the golden calf. And again, it's not so much survival. Survival was taken care of when Moses was still on the mountain, when Moses prayed for the people, and God relented of the evil. But the issue in the text of Exodus is not survival. It's the full relationship between God and the people. And that can only be accomplished if from both sides there are modifications and a willingness to enter into this relationship. From the standpoint of the people, they have to seek out God. From the standpoint of the people, have to take responsibility, have to take, initially distance themselves from that jewelry with which they made the golden calf and which in one sense represents Egypt. From the divine standpoint... God will go with them in the aspect of mercy of the Rachum V'chanu. 
It's interesting that, of course, the book of Exodus now continues and culminates in the building of the Mishkan, in the building of the tabernacle. And what is used to build the tabernacle is the gold and the silver. The holy vessels of the Mishkan and the holiest of all are fashioned from gold. The holier the vessel, the more expensive the metal which is used in building that vessel. So the gold is used to build the holiest vessels of the Mishkan and as such represents two stages in the process of the people's return. The initial stage of the penitent is to distance oneself from one's past. There's a sense of shame, a sense of horror, which is described in chapter 33. They took the gold, which had been used to fashion the golden calf, and they stripped themselves of their jewelry, and they separated themselves from the gold. So in the initial stages of repentance, there is an act of separation. The higher level of repentance, which is implicit in the building of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, the building of God's house, is to take that very gold, which they took from the land of Egypt, and which represented Mitzrayim, which represents Egypt, to take that very gold and to use it for a higher purpose. Namely, to proclaim themselves as connected to God through God's place, through God's sacred space. That's the building of the Mishkan with the very same Zahar Vachestav, the very same gold and silver. If we now reflect back on the liturgy of Yom Kippur and the place of the Srichot, which is the repetition of the 13 attributes of God's mercy, it would appear that Yom Kippur in the Jewish calendar is really a culmination of a process which begins in the summer. Tishabav, the national day of Jewish mourning, is a day which represents the absence of God. It's a day in which we commemorate the destruction of two temples. The temple represents God's presence in this world. Its destruction speaks of God's silence and God's absence. In the biblical text, we are told that the first step in the process of return began when Moses told the people in chapter 33 that you can capture the sacred land, but God will not go with you. Which we understood to mean there can be no tabernacle, there can be no mishkan, there can be no temple. And the response of the people, interestingly, was vayit mourning. People took off the jewelry. The people mourned. That begins the process. What is mourning? Mourning is a recognition that something is wrong. There's not necessarily a full understanding of how to correct it. But there's a sense of uneasiness. Something is missing. In the Torah, that begins the process, which concludes with the people's ability to reconnect to God. And the critical moment is when Moses receives the teachings of the 13 attributes of God's mercy. Only after that is it possible to build the tabernacle. Is it possible to represent God as dwelling amongst the people? The 13 attributes of God's mercy 
are really the culmination of the process of repentance. And that's, I believe, how Yom Kippur should be understood. It's a culmination of a process which begins in the summer with a day of mourning, which itself, Tishabav, which itself is based upon Yom Kippur. Tishabav is a rabbinic day of mourning modeled upon Yom Kippurim. Has many of the same requirements, the same ritual, the same customs as Yom Kippurim. But Yom Kippur is also a culmination of a process which begins with Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the great day of judgment. And Rosh Hashanah, one might say, the issue is mi yichyel, mi yamut, who will live and who will die. On Rosh Hashanah, we talk about survival. On Yom Kippur, the issue is not primarily survival. The issue is quality of life. The great prayer of Yom Kippurim is the recreation of the high priest entering the Holy of Holies and performing the Avoda, the sacred service. The temple in the liturgy represents the full relationship between God and the people. In the classical prayer book, after the Avoda is described, the high priest entering the Holy of Holies and bringing atonement not only for Israel, but for the cosmos, Immediately after we describe the high priest's entrance into the Holy of Holies and we sing about how glorious it was when the high priest stood before God and brought atonement for the world, we right away say, But the sins of our ancestors destroyed the temple. And immediately after the service of the high priest, we recite the penitential prayers, the slichot. For if what the Avodah represents is the full relationship with God, the God who can dwell amongst us, the God with whom we can have constant communication, what the slichot speak of is the fact that something is still missing. We don't have the temple. We don't have the full communication with God. We have often experienced the God of silence the God who is absent in our lives. And what the Selichot speak of is the attempt on the part of the people to reconnect to that God, to have God fully dwell amongst us. We make that plea by recreating Moses' prayer. We on Yom Kippur are the Moses who stood at Sane and said, dwell amongst the people. God, dwell amongst us. 